LinkedIn presents. Welcome to Big Technology Podcast, a show for cool-headed, nuanced conversation of the tech world and beyond. Benedict Evans is our guest today. He's a StarTech analyst who spent years at Andreessen Horowitz and other firms and is now independent. Evans joins us today to discuss the state of big tech, breaking down his big new presentation, The New Gatekeepers, which highlights some surprising new shifts underway in the tech industry. Did you know, for instance, that Amazon's ad business is now bigger than all of newspaper advertising combined? And that it's also bigger than Amazon Prime? Beneath all of this is a trend that Evans points out, which is that the line between media and retail is kind of blurring. What's a media site and what's a retail site? At Amazon and some of its peers, that's a bit unclear. That's the kind of stuff we cover in today's episode, along with a discussion of where the chatbot business is heading, looking into some of the APIs. My conversation with Benedict Evans, right after this. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, Benedict. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Great to have you back. Really had a fun discussion last time you were on. Back then, Apple was at $3 trillion. It feels like a completely different world today. And I guess that's just how the pace of tech moves. Well, there's just as many people online as there were back then, in fact, slightly more. Um, But uh, there's an old line about the uh, stock market and the economy being rather like a dog going for a walk with its owner. And the owner walks in roughly the same direction and the dog kind of zigs back and forth. Um, but they both end up in roughly the same place. And I think that's what happened in the last couple of years. Like the dog went off chasing a rabbit and then has kind of slunk back with its tail between its legs. So you think now we've caught the, the dog and the, the human in this metaphor yeah don't, stretch, don't stretch the, yeah, don't torture the metaphor. Yeah, no. I, <laughs> We're in a heel well, state. Look, there was, there, there's a chart early in my presentation of the market cap of Exxon and Zoom. And there was a moment when Zoom had a larger market cap than Exxon, and that was not sensible. Um, there was a moment when, you know, the weirdest Silicon Valley metaphor I heard was people got ahead of their skis. Um, people got, you know, we had a sort of certain loss of discipline, a certain over-enthusiasm. Um, but e-commerce penetration is still 20 plus percent. Five billion people out of six billion adults have got a smartphone today. Um, and so none of those things are winding back. Um, none of the actual underlying conversion to technology and, you know, destabilization, recreation of markets is going away. Um, we've just got a little bit of a, um, a shift of gear. So wait, do you think this entire big tech drawback, the narrative was overblown? Oh, look, you know, it's it's a long time since I was an equity analyst and I think about, you know, valuations for as little as possible. Even beyond the stock, though, just like that's a narrative right now that big tech is in retreat. I don't really know. I mean, I, I don't know what the narrative is, really. I mean, I think there's an interest rate thing. There's a macro thing. There is, um, you know, there was a moment in 2020, 21, when people sort of thought, wait, maybe we've just kind of jumped for, in time forward five years. And it turns out that actually, maybe we jump forward six months. 
We're not quite back on the trend line, but we're not very far off the trend line that we were on before. But it, it's it's important. This isn't like what happened in 2000 when, you know, the growth that people were expecting just disappeared. We are now roughly where we would have been if the pandemic hadn't happened. And the valuations are kind of roughly back where they were before the pandemic. So, like, go figure. Right. So it just feels like there was this moment of irrational exuberance, and now things are picking up a pace. They are, yes. I mean, you know, guess what? Zoom is not a global platform that reinvents communication, but business travel is <laughs> down probably 20% and will stay there. Do you think that some of the minimized valuations on these big tech companies will change their strategy at all? Like, does Apple at $3 trillion act substantially different from Apple at, let's say, $2.25 trillion? Yeah, I think Apple is probably the least affected by all of this. I mean, obviously, there's a certain Apple. Apple, in a sense, is more exposed to things happening entirely outside tech. Like, you know, if we go as we go into an actual recession, people's willingness to buy thousand fifteen hundred dollar phones slows down a bit. Um, so they've kind of got a, kind of a different set of things to think about. Um, for Meta or for Alphabet. Um, E-commerce growth is slowing down a bit. Advertising is slowing down a bit. Advertising from outside tech is probably slowing down a bit. And so that has consequences for them. And obviously, Amazon um, more than doubled their fulfillment square footage from 2019 to the end of last year. And that was probably too much. And so they're slowing down a bit. Um, But it's not like everybody who was buying online has stopped buying online. I think the interesting kind of there's a sort of a very Silicon Valley dynamic here around things like, you know, I mean, this is obviously the um, one of the ways that people looked at the chaos at Twitter is um, why on earth did they had have 15,000 people working there or whatever it was, 10, 11, 10 or 11,000 FTEs and then like another 5,000 contractors. Um, and to the number they're at now, which is, I think, last I heard, it's like 2,000 or something. That's probably not the right number, but the right number is maybe three or four. It's not 15. And you certainly would hear a lot from um, Alphabet and from Meta that they were off. they'd hired an awful lot of people. They also couldn't really fire anybody. So there were quite a lot of people kind of hanging around, not doing very much. And it's a bit like the old joke, you know, how many people work at this company? About half. And that was starting <laughs> to feel to feel a little bit true at, at Alphabet. So, yeah, there's going to be a bit of a, you know, the kind of brutal phrase or anodyne phrase correction. But, you know, the underlying dynamics of the growth that we were having in 2019 hasn't gone anyway. So you've mentioned it a couple of times that you have this new presentation out, and I think we've kind of gotten off to the races here to start off. But maybe we take a step back and talk a little bit about this presentation. And you make these big, big presentations once a year that sort of wrap up your thoughts on where things are going in the tech industry, where they're coming from. This year is, is all about the new gatekeepers. and talking a little bit about how, and let me know if I get this wrong or not, but how companies like Amazon are surpassing traditional retail and internet advertising is surpassing traditional advertising. You know, and as I read, first of all, there's so much good data in there that we're going to cover over the course of this conversation. But as I read, I also looked at it and said, wait a second. So internet advertising, displacing newspaper and traditional advertising. Okay. I feel like that's been something that's been going on a long time. And uh, e-commerce displacing retail that also or brick and mortar retail also feels like a something that we've seen for a long time. So is is your thesis here that we're hitting an inflection point? Well, so there's there's a hundred odd slides in the presentation, each of them with sort of one point or one chart. And so there's not one thesis. 
Um, some of this is just like this is an important thing that you should know is happening. I think maybe maybe kind of two or three things that were sort of, sort of threads that run run through some of the material is it's almost that I think it's useful to kind of step back and say, well, what are these definitions and why are we drawing those kinds of distinctions? So, for example, you know, when we um, get into a car and drive to go to a Walmart, we don't say I'm going to do some car commerce now. Um, and, right. you know, when you, you know, drive to your home in the suburbs, we don't talk about car um, my car home instead of my walking home. Those sort of distinctions, that's just one of very many different kinds of distinction. And I think it's kind of, there's, there's a chart in the presentation where I say, well, this is what um, American businesses spend on online advertising. This is what retailers spend on rent. And rent and advertising have now sort of become two sides of the same question in the way that they weren't in the past. You know, you can say, should we open stores there or advertise there? Which is not a question you could have asked before the internet. But then take that a bit further. Well, there's advertising and then there's shipping and there's returns and there's your payment charges, your, 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 your credit card interchange fees. There's your trade dollars, your marketing expenses. There's, um, there's all sorts of money that gets spent between the product leaving the factory door and the customer unwrapping it at home. And those all sort of used to be different industries, different parts of the org chart, different budgets. And now they kind of become one question. How is it that we should be reaching our customer? And in that context, you know, a lot of most of the Amazon charts that I have have Walmart on them as well. Um, because, you know, we do kind of remember, I'm just about old enough to remember when people thought that Walmart was the, the end of Western civilization. Um, and it's, you know, raised legitimate questions about, you know, what Walmart did to parts of America. But, you know, now we understand it's just a big retailer and Amazon is, is kind of just a big retailer. I think the, the sort of the pair to that thesis, I think, would also be um, how many of these questions are not tech questions anymore. Um, I mean, I've, I've said a number of times that I don't think I don't think the questions that matter for Netflix are tech questions; they're TV questions. The same thing for Shein, which we might talk about, which is a fast fashion retailer that's now bigger than than Zara or H and M. What are the questions that matter to them? Are they tech questions or smart or, or, or power questions? I mean, they sell on smartphones. But it seems to me that you, one would sort of think of e-commerce or the internet or streaming video or whatever it is as a new channel or a new route to market. But who is it that uses that new route to market? Well, it's people in that market or it's people who might be new entrants to that market, but it's that market. So all the questions for Walmart are grocery questions all, and all the questions for Shein are apparel questions. But Walmart didn't create, get created by car people. It's not a car company. It didn't get created by people from Detroit. And I think so. I think that sort of shift of, um, you know, the technology has kind of changed how all of this works, whether that's apparel or retail or TV or advertising. But then they remain apparel questions or TV questions or retailing questions. And, and let's unpack some of this. And for me, there were some of these parts that really struck a nerve looking through some of the slides you put together, especially about how some of this stuff has merged, how maybe retail and advertising aren't exactly that distinct. And to just kick off with it, I mean, Amazon, We knew I knew Amazon was an ad powerhouse, but I it just struck me reading through your slides about how big Amazon's advertising business is. I mean, first of all, you have a slide in there that says Amazon's ad business is bigger than Prime. And Amazon incredibly sells more advertising than newspapers. 
So can you unpack this a little bit and talk a little bit about how Amazon's become so important in the ad space? And so, yeah. So, yeah. Um, so a couple of years ago, there's, so it's always amazing how people to me, amazes to meet uh, people who have strong opinions about a company never seem to go and read the accounts. And so they'll kind of loudly say, we wish this company would tell us what this number is. And you think, yeah, that is, has been in the back of the accounts for the last 10 years. And so Amazon gives a breakdown of um, their business by on in the PNL. They have um, um, AWS and um, they split out AWS separately in the retail. But in the back of the accounts, um, they have these other things like, you know, what's the, the revenue for the physical stores? And they had this category called other. And the other number started getting really big. And the footnote to that said it was predominantly advertising. And then at the end of, I think, 2020, it got big enough that they had to break it out. Uh, they had to break out the advertising part, and it turned out it was all advertising. And last year, it was, I think, it was $38 billion. And I'm always kind of a fan of making charts that tell you what that means. And like, what does $38 billion mean? Is that a lot of money? Like, how big is advertising? Like, if you don't follow this stuff, like it sounds like a lot of money to me. What does that mean? Which is why I kind of turned around and said, well, it's roughly the same size as Prime. Um, it is bigger than the global newspaper industry, which, as everyone does know, has kind of collapsed over the last 20 years, which is maybe another conversation. Um, it also makes them like the fifth or sixth biggest media owner on earth, although obviously um, Alphabet and Meta are two by, by far the largest. Um, and so that was kind of one, one, one way of, of looking at this. I think it's a sort of second way of looking at this, which really picks up to what I was saying a moment ago about you know, challenging definitions and asking how much, what these definitions really mean is that you can look at amateur so is that you can start start at this by saying well this is this is a kind of a broader category called merchant media or retail media in which um you know if you own a store you can't really put advertising i mean you can maybe put a little bit of advertising in the store but you're not a media owner but if you've got a website that hundreds of millions of people are looking at that's media and the, the square footage so to speak of that website is inventory that you could put ads on at least in principle and combine that with the whole movement of privacy in the last couple of years and the move away from cookies um, means that suddenly the fact that you've got this inventory and you have some idea who these people are and you have some consent to that, and even if you don't, you know what they're searching for in an anonymous way, means that it, all sorts of people have suddenly realized that they have ad inventory that they didn't realize was ad inventory and that it's suddenly relatively much more appealing to advertisers than it might have been five years ago because they've got this first-party targeting data. And Amazon pioneered this, but Walmart will probably do two and a half to $3 billion in 2022. Um, Uber did 500 million, hit a $500 million run rate um, at the end of last year. Um, Target is doing this. Everyone's doing this because... And one of the quotes in my presentation was um, a quote from the CEO of Walmart basically saying, oh, my God, look at these margins. Because if you're a retailer and you've got like 2 or 3% margins, well, and then you suddenly add like 5% to your top line in ad revenue at a 50% margin, then you've, that's, that's a meaningful change to your net income, which, of course, is what's happened to Amazon. Um, so that's kind of a second piece, which is like any retailer has suddenly realized that they could try and do this. I think the third thing that's interesting, though, again, on definitions is, is this advertising or is this marketing? In fact, you could ask, is Amazon, is, is Google search ad actually advertising or is that marketing? You're paying to be next to the till. You know, if you give a supermarket money to be next to the checkout, that's not advertising, that's marketing. What is, is that, is that what I'm, but that sounds like that, what is it that Amazon's doing? Is it advertising or marketing? You could also call this price discrimination. 
which is to say, if you are um, a brand and you are paying Amazon a retail margin in order to sell your product, if Amazon comes, when you then buy search ads as well in Amazon, you're just giving Amazon a bigger cut. So what Amazon is really doing is saying, well, people who have a higher profitability will pay us more because they'll still have the ROI to support it. And so you could say this is advertising. You could say it's um, marketing. You could say it's price discrimination. You could say it's something else. Um, I mean, is Prime, Prime is, is mainly a marketing cost. That's how Amazon think about it, even though it's not in the marketing line. So all of those sorts of definitions break apart when it's all kind of happening on the same website and doing the same thing. Whereas in the physical world, like advertising is advertising and marketing is marketing because they're like happening in different places in different ways. Yeah, they're all right. kind of this merge into one. That's interesting. But the question is, of course, like you're not a media site when you're an Amazon. You are an e-commerce site. And the other side of this is that you can ruin your site by trying to become this media site and end up harming the usability, which, I mean, one look through Amazon tells you that this site is just much worse than it used to be. What's your perspective on that? There's a dilemma here. Um, I mean, Amazon has, pick a number, it's hard, hard to get a hard number, but they've got you know, certainly hundreds of millions of SKUs. Um, at a certain point, those numbers sort of become meaningless because you've got 200 people selling the same thing and you've got SKUs that don't exist until you order them. And so it's not like saying how many SKUs does a department store have and what does Amazon have in comparison. Um, but what you have here, in, 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 in essence, is an attempt to capture everything that, that could possibly exist and could possibly be sold. At least certainly everything that isn't kind of grocery and doesn't have to be refrigerated, which is, again, a sort of separate conversation. But in principle, anything other than, than like frozen food and veg fruit and vegetables could be sold on Amazon as an interchangeable widget, as an interchangeable skew. And, um, of course, what they've done to unlock this is create marketplace. And so now something like 60% of what gets sold through Amazon isn't sold by Amazon. It's sold by third parties using Amazon as a channel. Um, it has sort of occurred to me that if you are kind of an innovative and thoughtful regulator and you wanted to take on Amazon, what you do is you'd say they have to offer wholesale access to the website and the logistics platform to anybody who wants it. And guess what they do? That's called marketplace. That's what that is. It's right. like an MV. It's as though any telco let anybody. It's like an MVNO. Um, and so, um, but what that means is that they can scale indefinitely because if they want to do such and such a product, they would have to hire people to go and source that product. But now they don't have to. They, it's like they basically created a free market in selling products on Amazon. And so, if you are, if you want, how can I put this? Put this another way. Um, Amazon has got lots of teams selling who work for Amazon who sell stuff on Amazon. So like makeup in Germany is a team for the sake of argument. But now they don't need for, to, for something to be sold on Amazon. The people selling it, the team selling it doesn't need to work for Amazon. Amazon doesn't even need to know they exist. They can just create their own um, marketplace account. So it's, it's, the, it's the original sort of, sort of strategic idea of saying, Jeff Bezos saying everything has to be an API. Well, if everything internal is an API, then why not just open that up to other people outside and they can sell too? And so this lets Amazon sort of scale indefinitely to selling everything on earth. Now, the challenge is, and you see this in content, you know, you see this in newsletters, you see this in podcasts, is if you create a system that makes it really easy for absolutely anybody to create, then everybody, then that's a problem as well. You have infinite content. Right. And so that's a problem for music. It's a problem for movies. It's a problem for books. It's now effectively a problem for, for anything, for any product. Um, and I have, a sl I, was gonna say, I mean, I have a slide in the presentation which kind of makes this point that um, 
we now have effectively have infinite product and infinite media. And it used right. to be that there was a filter in how much could be stocked by Walmart or Macy's or whatever it is and what they would they choose to stock. So that was one filter. And then there was a filter on who could, you know, what brand could support a nationwide TV buy, what brand could support putting an ad on the back page of Vogue. And so there was a media filter, you know, what, you know, what, how many things could Vogue or GQ or a car magazine actually write about anyway? So you had a filter in the kind of the, the discovery or suggestion channel and a filter in the kind of the logistics or the purchasing channel. And those filters are both gone. There's infinite media, there's infinite content, there's infinite, there, it's an infinite product. And so whether you're a brand or a consumer, you've got this kind of like, suddenly you've kind of got the fire hose full in the face, which is what you're describing when you go to Amazon. But I suppose what I'm getting at is like, that's the sort of inherent problem in not having a fixed amount of square footage per store and in deciding that you're going to allow anybody to sell anything. Exactly. And there's another problem in being a marketplace, right? I mean, Amazon became Amazon because it had this first-party marketplace. But now it's effectively, as you're saying, become a third-party marketplace in its retail operation and an ad house. And you look at the challengers. You have challengers like Shopify. And one another number that struck me in your presentation is that Shopify is 40, 45% as big as the Amazon marketplace. So if you can't differentiate yourself by a first-party marketplace and you play only in the third-party marketplace game, of course, there's fulfillment. Do you then open yourself up to challenges from a company like Shopify, which, by the way, in your presentation seems a lot stronger than everything that I've heard about the company over the past couple of years? Yeah, so, I mean, Shopify is... is there's several things that are interesting about Shopify. One of them is a bit like Shein, a bit like this new thing, Temu. Um, a little bit like WhatsApp sort of 10 years ago or Skype before that. It's this thing that sort of became huge before anybody had quite noticed it. And those sort of, I, those things always sort of intrigue me. It's like, what the hell is this thing that seems to be in the top 10 of every app store on earth, but I've never heard of. That's always kind of an interesting thing to look at. Um, I mean, Shopify is, um, it's a platform that lets anybody run a sort of first class startup quality e-commerce experience. A whole bunch of their businesses, startups and small businesses and individuals, but another huge portion of it is big companies. So, you know, Facebook uses it, Snap uses it, Heinz uses it. Um, and so it's a way of having like top tier, good quality e-commerce experience. It's a way of unbundling Amazon. Um, but of course, if you, when you, you, but of course, then you still have to tell people about it. So you, you know, instead of putting all of your money into rent, you put all your money into advertising. Um, then you have, um, the sort of the challenge that Shopify has is, are we just kind of an enterprise SaaS company charging a percentage or are we a network? You know, at the moment, they're not a marketplace and they're not really a network. There's ShopPay, which is a little bit of a network for the, use, for, the, for the merchant in that they can say, we'll offer you ShopPay and therefore you'll have higher conversion. But, for, but it's not really a network effect from the consumer side. The consumer doesn't know that a website is on Shopify until they've already got to the point that they're making the purchase. And so what Shopify, I think, want to do is somehow work out ways of creating more network effects so that there are more reasons for merchants and or consumers to be on Shopify um, without upsetting the merchants by supplanting their brand, which, of course, is the trade-off that you take. If you go onto Amazon, then you're, you're dependent on Amazon as a brand. Um, now, I, if you look at the, the, the share price, um, was that a $100 billion company? What was the peak valuation? Like it was $50 billion? Was that really a $50 billion company? Well, if they had all that network and stuff, stuff done, then maybe. 
without it, I don't know. Again, I'm not an equity analyst anymore. Um, I occasionally I see the CEO um, complaining about short sellers um, on 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 Twitter, which I, I, I never think is particularly sensible. Um, no. And yeah. so you can argue about the valuation all day. That that to me, frankly, doesn't interest me so much as the sort of strategic shift of brands going direct. And it's actually something we should talk about um, going back briefly to marketplace is. You know, this guy, I can't remember the guy's name at Marketplace Pulse, which is, is always interesting. He reckons that, that, that something like some, anything between a third and a half of, China, of, of Marketplace vendors are Chinese manufacturers going direct. And this, is, you know, right this, yeah. this was this thing in Atlantic about all these made up brands on Amazon that this is also a story about Xi'an, which is that part of what you've got here are Chinese manufacturers that used to sell to Western American developed world retailers and brands now trying to make their own brands and sell direct through to the consumer. And because they don't need now to have their own physical retail presence or even put stuff into physical retail, third-party physical retailers, they can sell direct through Amazon Marketplace. And so Anchor is, I think, probably a $2 billion business last year. And that's a brand that's been created almost entirely on Amazon Marketplace. So you've got this sort of, you know, it's turtles all the way down. You've got um, unbundling and bundling going on in every, every direction. So, you know, you've unbundled from Best Buy you've un- into Amazon. You unbundle from Amazon into Shopify. Amazon bundles in your ad, but ad- takes your ad spend and bundles it back into um from from TV or podcast or whatever, and bundles it back into Amazon. Like it's unbundling and unbundling in every possible direction. And kind of part of the point is like there was this old, relatively straightforward way in which all of this worked that was relatively sort of simple and well understood for like 50 years. And now all the cards have kind of been thrown up in the air and no one knows what the hell's going on or where they land. Benedict Evans is here. He is a preeminent tech analyst. You can find his work at ben-evans.com. There's a great newsletter there that's subscribed to by more than 175,000 people. You could also find the presentation there. We've been talking about the new gatekeepers focusing on retail and e-commerce in the first half. Second half, we'll talk about advertising and generative AI. Back after this. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing. New currencies come and go. Decades of savings lost in days all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast, Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. And we're back with Bendict Evans here on Big Technology Podcast. We're talking about sort of the resurgence of big tech that may not actually be a resurgence, actually just a continuation along the line of growth that we've seen from them. It's just kind of been skewed by the pandemic. Let's talk about Facebook and Google. We did Amazon in the first half. Let's talk about Facebook and Google. You mentioned in your presentation that these companies are used to 20% a year growth and they are not going to see that anymore or may not be seeing that anymore in terms of revenue. 
Do they look different when they don't have that type of growth? And why is their growth tailing off? Well, there's many different ways to answer this question. I mean, one of them, I think, is um, there's a sort of a short-term macro pickup. And I don't think one would just sort of presume that, you know, good times are over. I indefinitely, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't think one, I would necessarily presume that, like, the long-term growth is just stopped and that's it now. And these companies are just going to be you know, flat. Um, it's more like we've, we've had a kind of a big macro shift in the last six months, 12 months. I think, you know, a second answer might be that when the stock is going up and you are in a war for talent, then you hire an awful lot of people. And, um, you know, these companies have hired huge numbers of people relative to they were, where they were in 2010. Um, you know, doubled or tripled in size. And not all of those people were necessarily found things to do or found productive things to do. And some of those people will now shake out and go and work for there's a, there's a sort of, you know, Panglossian view in the valley. This is all fantastic that all these people are now available to startups, which, you know, if you're working, you know, five hours a day at Google on half a million dollars and now you're getting a job for a startup where you've got to work 14 hours a day on 100 grand plus stock options, that may not necessarily feel like a fantastic change, but like, Go figure. That's like that's the way of the world. Um, however, um, there's kind of another way of coming at this, which is, and it sort of speaks to what we were talking about before the break, which is, you know, what is Google's TAM? Is Google's TAM, and it's also this this this, this, this sort of point, you know, Google and Facebook have got whatever it is, half to two thirds of digital advertising, and digital advertising is now probably three quarters of global advertising. Um, is that the right? That, but that's not a good way of understanding what's going on here. Um, what's actually happened is that the value of print advertising basically evaporated as a consequence of the internet. And it, sort of five to 10 years later, Google and then Meta invented these completely new advertising models that by and large got completely different kinds of advertisers and made a lot of money from them. And the ad budgets that are going into Alphabet or Amazon ads or Meta today are are those coming from TV ad budgets? Well, yes, but they're also coming from rent budgets and hmm. shipping budgets and pricing and margin and everything else. Again, you know, you kind of ask this question, should we spend our money on opening stores or on advertising? Should we, you know, if we want to be, if we want people to buy our, buy our product, should we cut our prices so that we rank higher for cheap product or should we spend the money on an Amazon ad? Like what's the best way of appearing on the first page on Amazon? Having free shipping, having a low price or buying an Amazon ad? And the answer is, well, maybe it, all three or it depends. But they're all one budget now. And so to, to look at, and if you look at, you know, you imagine that the marketer at that company saying, you know, do I put the money into free shipping, free returns, Amazon ads, or low prices? And then you look at the Amazon ad revenue and you say, oh, they've taken all this money from the rest of the ad industry. Well, that's not what's happened at all. Like, no, that's not what's going on. Interesting. Um, what's, what's happening is that the ad budget is no longer a separate thing. And obviously I'm kind of exaggerating for effect here, but you know, what's happening is that the ad budget, the rent, but basically the entire margin of Procter & Gamble, everything below the gross margin line, all blurs into one question, which is how is it that we, or how is it that we spend this money? Do we spend it on advertising or on retail margins? Do we build a DTC business? Like, what do we do? So let me ask you this, you know, speaking of distinction disappearing and things that swallow everything else, and you knew this question was coming, I have to ask it. What do you think the new chatbot wave is going to do to this stuff? Is it, do you think it's going to, is there going to be a ripple here that it's going to make? Is it going to subsume things or do you think it will sort of 
just exist on the side as a sideshow and everything continues to pace as normal? So several answers to this. I think the first of them is everyone thinking about this thinks that they are confused and do not quite have a good coherent understanding of what this is, what it means, and, and, and what it turns into. And that's right down from the kind of the technical level of exactly what, what is it that LRMs are doing, why are they working, what are the limitations of this, what are the things that don't work, and how feasible is it to fix them? So that's sort of basic like machine learning science questions. But there's also questions like, is, this, is, is a chatbot the right way to turn this into a product? Is that the right thing to do with it? Um, is, this, is, is general search is, is, is this some, is generalized search a good use case for this? Is this something that takes over generalized search? Or are all the vertical applications that are already kind of stringing up like mushrooms actually the place where most of this becomes most useful? Um, I mean, I think it's kind of interesting to go back and think about all of the wave of um, voice assistants five and six years ago, um, which I think we would all kind of now feel was, you know, there was a moment when everyone was running around going, oh my God, this is a new platform. And I think we all kind of understood now, like, no, it can do about, they're useful for about five things. And some of that is because before LLMs, you actually had to write the answers one by one. So machine learning let you ask the question and it could t take the audio, transcribe the audio into text, work out the structure of the question, so work out what you're asking, but it could only ask 50, answer 15 questions. So anything else that you'd ask, it just couldn't answer, even if it understood the question. Um, and LLMs mean that, like at least in principle, you can ask ChatGPT anything. Like You don't have to write the answers one by one by hand. Um, like you, but, but it still doesn't follow that voice is the right UI or that chat is the right UI. There is a sort of a broad generalized question of like, what does it mean that these things, when these things are quote unquote wrong? What does it mean when they quote unquote make things up? And I'm very doubtful that make things up is actually the right way of describing what's going on when they say something that isn't, that you don't think is true. I think there's a really kind of interesting intellectual puzzle of yes, but what does that mean? Is, um, there's a second question, which is, um, like, why the hell is this Bing thing gone crazy and how, how, Somebody, um, somebody very senior said to me, like the Microsoft, the Microsoft described this as micro, oh. Microsoft's galactic scale fuck up. Hmm. Um, of like, what is that? Which is distinct from the kind of deeper problems in ChatGPT. There's like a third question, which is, is how would you turn this into a search engine, and what would that mean? What would that do for market share? What, how would that change how the ad model works? What does that mean for for copyright? If you are, I mean, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with the idea of newspapers that if I send you a link to a newspaper story, then Google or Facebook are somehow supposed to pay the newspaper. And I think we would both agree that this was just completely preposterous. But if I ask Bing or Google, you know, hey, what's going on in Ukraine this week? And it just reads me out three paragraphs that it's scraped out of the BBC and the New York Times and doesn't link to them or give them any traffic. Well, that's a whole other conversation. Like at that point, the newspapers are entirely right. Yeah, all pissed off yeah that's fine. And say, you can't do that. Can I swear on this podcast? You can bleep it out. Um, the new... Yeah, the newspapers... The new, at that point, the newspapers are entirely right to say, wait, you can't do that. So that's a whole question. Um, and then there's a sort of a more fundamental point, which is like, is doing a chat UI the right way of doing this? And is using this for general search? The, does that make even make any sense? Is that the right model? And so, you know, as I sort of said at the beginning of answering this, like, there's an awful lot of questions. I don't think we quite know what all the questions are. I certainly don't think we know what the answers are. 
Um, right. I mean, there's a whole other exactly. strand, which is like, what is the capex required to actually pipe all of Google through this stuff? Which is, you know, again, I don't actually think anybody knows the answer, but the answer is, is probably quite a lot, although that will change radically over time. But like, so there's an awful lot of questions. We don't even know what all the questions are yet. And we're kind of trying to digest this and kind of work out like what's the right layer of abstraction to understand it. Well, the reason why we're asking these questions is that there is some sort of there there, right? That these things are are pretty incredible. And without overhyping them, they're unbelievable to chat with. I spent a couple hours chatting with the Bing chat and I've spent more hours chatting with ChatGPT. And it's, it is pretty unbelievable. So is it too early to say whether or not this threatens Google? Uh, obviously, the, there's this narrative that that Bing is the new. Well, yeah. so any platform shift, yeah, and so any platform shift is a sort of any sort of moment of discontinuity is a way of shifting consumer habits and patterns of behavior. It's a moment at which people can drop the ball. Um, so that's one answer. The second is, like, does this, is this doing something that's fundamentally challenging for them to do? And, you know, the kind of classic example, of course, here is always the shift to the iPhone. And kind of an, a kind of analogy I came up with randomly the other day was the first um, electronic calculator, which is powered by an Intel chip, the desktop calculator. It costs like $1,000 in today's money, and it's a calculator. Um, and it looks just like the calculators that exist already, but the, the competition are electromechanical. So they're basically like horrendously complicated typewriters with like 3,000 moving parts inside them. And you take the lid off and it looks like a kind of David Cronenberg nightmare. And they're doing the same thing, but they're completely different products. One of them has got, got, got like thousands of mechanical moving parts and the other of them has one chip. And when you take the lid off, you're like, oh, that's why the people who made the electromechanical calculators were completely screwed. Because even though it looks like the same thing, it's not. And that's sort of what happened when BlackBerry looked at the iPhone and when Nokia and Microsoft looked, 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 they're like, this is a completely different thing. And we have no idea how to do this. For Microsoft, the problem was, um, okay, how does Microsoft beat the iPhone? Well, first of all, they'd be not be Microsoft because everyone's scared of them. Secondly, they have to make an open source operating system that they give away for free that has no commonality with Windows APIs. Like, imagine saying that to Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer. Like they'd look at you like you'd grown a third arm, and like they couldn't do it. Like the, 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 there's no way they would have agreed to do that at that point in time. And so now we have this question: like, Is there some reason that Google can't do this? Are they the electrical? Are they the mechanical calculator company? Of course not. You know, they've got more. They've built more LLMs inside the company than OpenAI and, Micro, OpenAI and Microsoft. Is there some like business culture disruption reason why they won't do it? Because, like, it challenges all the things that they believe. Maybe the question is: Is the reason that they've so far not done right. it because they're right? You know, this is what you see, like Yan mm. Lekun saying, which is looking at this thing and saying it doesn't work. <laughs> I mean, the, I mean, the, 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 I was going to say I'm going to have a monologue about all this all day, but like, I think it's really interesting to compare this with Hololens. Because the HoloLens, you remember that? Anyone else remember HoloLens? Remember when this was the future of Microsoft and this was going to let them become dominant in mobile devices and this was the new smartphone? Of course. And of course, it gave them, it's very cool. It gives great demo, um, but it's got like a three-inch field of view and it doesn't work in daylight and there was no path for those to get fixed. 
it also wasn't their technology anyway, which is another commonality with, with Bing GPT um, or chat GPT. Um, and here, here we are now, whatever it is, five years later, the whole thing's kind of been quietly forgotten. But it was great PR at the time. And you kind of look at this and think, is the reason that Google and Meta and so on haven't launched this because they don't get it or because they can't do it or they're dumb or that their, their politics and their business model won't let them, which was part of the Microsoft problem? Or is it that they're looking at this and going, yeah, this doesn't work? And one of the interesting things that you bring up is, you know, it, it may not be the core brand, right? Like it's actually, I guess, being needed to roll this out as the core brand because it was a demo or whatever it may be. but. That was risky because you then attach it to the Bing brand and they, they have rolled it back in ways that are surprising. But then you think about how do you make this available to others as an API and maybe they take the risk. Uh, so what do you think about that? I'm kind of curious. I, I imagine there's going to be some sort of some sort of war to provide infrastructure where other companies or other entities can build their own bots on top of this tech. Is that where you see it going? So, so I think there's an interesting kind of engineering slash product puzzle in that. In, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think about it. I almost think it's kind of like it's sort of at a right angle to the problem. We put it like that, which <laughs> is I don't think anybody doubts that this stuff is going to be enormously world-changingly useful for certain specific vertical applications. So I was looking at something this afternoon, which was basically for developers to in big companies that have got mountains of code and say, "What is this module doing?" Um, or, you know, summarize this podcast or do this or do that or get, you know, the GitHub Copilot is kind of an example here. And I think the interesting common thread in those vertical applications is um, you don't run the risk of it going off the rails and accusing you of like trying to murder it. And where it gets 5% of stuff wrong and quote unquote makes things up, you can tell because you can see it doing it because you know how it works. And you, or rather, you know enough about the domain that you can see the mistakes and fix them. You know, if you get it to write code for you and you can write code as well, you can look and go, yeah, that bit's wrong. Where the 10% or 5% error rate is dangerous is if you let people ask for medical advice and you're not a doctor and you don't know the bit that's wrong. And that's where you get into difficulty using it for generalized search is almost by definition, people are using it for stuff they don't know. All of which is a way of saying, like, yeah, make the APIs and let people build dedicated vertical applications where the people using it understand what it is, understand how it works. You've built all the tooling around it to handle what it should be doing. It can't ask the stuff it shouldn't be doing. You can stop. You, you, know, you don't have to worry about people, people trying to get it to give you instructions for suicide because it's a coding assistant. It's, you don't have that open-ended problem. Um, and you're putting it in the hands of people who are able to assess the results and evaluate it. So when when you make it vertical, uh, like a huge chunk of the problems go away, or at least it's solvable. The, the challenge is if you try and use it for general purpose search, that's not really a brand problem. That's a like, is that at, at that point now you've got people saying, do I have appendicitis, and un, and are not able actually to assess the reliability of the answer. Or people are trying to, are saying, hey, what's the best way to try a noose if I want to kill myself? And your filter doesn't catch that, which is obviously a problem that Google had 20 years ago. Right. And it's the general search thing. Trying to use it for general search is maybe where all the problems come from or, like, or, make, or makes all of those problems much more difficult to solve, which is kind of a paradox because um, 
you go back to voice assistants, the reason voice assistants, the problem with voice assistants is if you ask it for cricket scores and nobody at Amazon has written a cricket score module, then it's got nothing for you. And you have to write all of those things one at a time, which just became impossible and unscalable. Whereas with an LLM, at least with, 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 with ChatGPT, because you've trained it on quote unquote the whole internet, in principle, it can answer anything except that maybe it can't. So maybe you need to build a special filter for cricket scores and a special filter for football scores and a special filter for men. And you're like, guess what? You're back at your rules-based system exactly. trying to build 150 things. So there's almost like a paradox. That you and that's what makes it so magical also is that it's ability to go anywhere. It is, except that then what does that mean? The magic and the disaster is two in one. And it, you know, it may be that, you know, you give it 10x more data and 10x more compute and that I have no idea what the actual error rate but you know it's an abstract concept anyway but you know you get the you get the error rate down by a couple of orders of magnitude and it doesn't matter that may be one answer the other answer might be actually no you end up having to build 150 hand tooled answers in which case what's the fucking point right and you should kind of go back to building individual vertical things i don't know Let's run with this this idea that it may be end up going uh, it may end up being infrastructure for individual things. Is there a company you think is better positioned there? I mean, this is clearly if that's the case, it will clearly be a battle between Azure and AWS, assuming Amazon releases something like this and Google Cloud. So, do, do you see that this? How do you see this battle shaping up? And do you think it's a meaningful business opportunity to provide the back end of maybe not like Bing Chat, but travel agent chat, for instance, or code chat that works in specialized circumstances? So I think there's a kind of a useful lens at looking at this stuff is the kind of evolution of the like the first wave of machine learning. Maybe that was the second or third wave of machine learning, but like the, the wave of machine learning that happened from a following on ImageNet in 2013. And so I was working at Andreessen Horowitz at the time from 2014, and you kind of had these waves of startups. So the first wave of startup is I'm academic, I've turned my resume into a PowerPoint. Can I have $10 million, please? I'm going to go and register a domain name. And then Google will buy me. And at A16Z, we're like, yeah, that doesn't really work for us as a venture investment, but it worked very well for them. And, and Google went out and bought those, all those people. Like second wave is we're going to be an image recognition platform. And anyone who needs image recognition will come to us and use it. And for most of those kinds of things, that ends up as part of AWS or Azure or GCP. Because that's like a basic primitive. It's like saying we're going to be a database provider. No, that's, you know, the right layer of abstraction for that is a large cloud provider. It's not like there's not like a standalone market for just that one thing, unless it's something super specialized like Stripe. Um, the next wave of abstraction is um, kind of comes into what two kinds. The first, and I picked two A16Z companies just because they're the ones I was familiar with. One of them is we had a company that does legal discovery software. So you see someone, they send you a truck full of paper, what do you do with it? Okay, now they've got translation built in. Now they can do sentiment analysis and say, find me weird emails. They can do clustering. Some of that is using AWS or Azure or GCP. Some of it is theirs, but they're not worried about competition from Amazon. They're they're building legal discovery software and they, that's what they do. They, and that, they understand how to build the software and they go to market. And so in that case, they're not even really an AI company. They're a legal software company. And AI just happens to be one of the things that they use to build one of the capabilities that they have. And so an awful lot of AI has sort of ended up like that. It kind of got absorbed into companies that were making some broader thing for an industry. The other way that AI got kind of deployed is, and another A16Z company, is... Um, 
a company that does natural language processing on text going in and out of Salesforce to work out which sales pipelines are going wrong. And again, that's, there's a lot more AI in that, or the AI is much more kind of primal in what they're doing because you just couldn't do that before. But that's not what the enterprise salespeople say. The enterprise salespeople say, you know, we do sales process optimization and we tell you which sales pipelines are going wrong. And we, yeah, we use AI to do that, but like they're not an AI company. And so that's a sort of, and again, are they using GCP or Azure to do that? I don't know. I don't care. Is it running on AWS? Obviously, yes. Well, that becomes a whole other conversation about, you know, should you run your own data center or not? But, I am, you know, GCP is not going to go and build that product or unlikely to build that product. I don't know. Having said that, now said that, probably they are already building it. But you know what I mean? Like, there's, what's the right level of abstraction here? And so I think that's, in principle, that's how this will evolve. That kind of the broad, generalized, low-level primitives that should be part of a big cloud platform will be part of a big cloud platform. But the more specific you get, the more industry-specific you get, the more layers of abstraction you have on top of something like, you know, please describe this for me. Um, the more that has to get wrapped into someone who understands the right way to sell asset management software to large movie studios and understands what product you need to do in order to create that or whatever the actual problem you're solving for an actual specific industry is. And so you've got those kind of lay, that kind of pyramid of different layers of abstraction. And I think that's how that, in principle, that's, that I would, that's how I would expect this to evolve, but I don't know what those categories will be. So let me let me ask you what you think then the, the business opportunity is. I mean, do you think this is substantial? Like, is every company going to want to have their own chatbot? Oh, I mean, I sometimes say that the tech industry suffers from Tourette's only instead of people shouting swear words at random <laughs> intervals and people, you know, shout out you know, voice, machine learning, NFTs, um, metaverse, and, and, and obviously now it's going to be chat GPT. Um, and yeah, you know, I was on a, a, I've been on two calls today with people who are organizing events in industries that are out, well outside the tech industry, and they're all talking about chat GPT um, and, you know, thinking about what you do with this stuff. Um, I mean, one of the slides in my presentation, I took, I took a product shot from Sheehan, and then I took the Sheehan description and typed in a stable diffusion and got three more images and put them up as a two-by-two two image on the slide. That's pretty cool. You can kind of tell, yeah. but you can't really tell. And that's just like, literally, that's just one shot me, you know, not, not optimized or specialized. You know, it's a general purpose model. I haven't played with it at all. I haven't done any, any prompt engineering at all. You know, all I did was type in the Sheehan description and I typed in, I think, small red print fabric. Like, that's it. And so that, you know, fairly obviously tells you there's going to be kind of a broad class of stuff where um, this will happen very, very quickly. But, you know, go back to thinking about machine learning, you know, you're, when you dial a call center for your bank now, the bank will be doing five different kinds of machine learning analyzing that. So hypothetically, there's something that's, uh, that's trying to work out if your calling pattern is weird and you might be a fraudster. There will also be stuff that's trying to work out if their call center agent is being rude to people or hanging up on people to get their numbers up. And you know, that's being done for them by, and that's not being done by Google. You know, that's been absorbed into the industry that provides software for call centers. Mm-hmm. And I think the sort of the same thing here, and that's not AI, you know, you, you don't, you neither, you don't think of yourself as, no, I'm going to use the AI now. I mean, there's an old joke. I mean, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about, you know, is, um, is chat GPT intelligent? 
Um, the old joke in AI research is that AI is anything that doesn't work yet. Because as soon as it works, people say, oh, that's not AI. That's just a database. Right. But you that's know? that's all become the, the back end stuff. And I think that isn't the change here that you're starting to interact with these things? Or is that too simplistic? Well, I suppose, again, again, the question is, that's the way that we happen to have instantiated that as a product. Uh-huh. Right. But I think there's a, you know, ChatGPT is a bundle. You know, it is a bundle of natural language input, natural language output, a chat thread-based UI, a couple of other things as well. But it doesn't, I wouldn't presume that that's the only way you do this. Um, I mean, you know, kind mm. of trivial example, if you take a screenshot of something on your iPhone now in Safari, and then you tap a week later, you go, I wonder what that was. You tap on the URL in the URL bar, the picture of the URL. That's now tappable. Hmm. The phone number is now tappable. Take a photograph of a bit of a, um, a poster. You can tap the phone number on the poster and your iPhone will call it. Now, there isn't a text recognition app on your phone that does that. That's just what the Photos app does. Right. And so I think a lot of this will just sort of get subsumed into like, well, that's just how computers work. Interesting. Yeah. I, I wonder what will, what will happen. Can we, can we end um, just by, I'd like to read one, one of your tweets and, and then we can wrap up. I'm kind of curious if you could sort of <laughs> explain what you were saying there. It says, uh, you said, if, if Google is the new Microsoft and Microsoft is the new IBM, then Bing is dot, dot, dot. That kind of caught my attention. What's going on in that one? Well, it's a very well. There's, there's a very, very obvious answer to that, isn't it? It's, I was thinking about Watson. Um, uh-huh. So, look, I mean, I think the observation that that Google has sort of become the new Microsoft, I think, is fairly obvious. You know, it's become this very big, big, sprawling, rather slow-moving tech company that provides, you know, the sort of endless sprawling thousands of different projects all of them sort of vaguely trying to touch consumer enterprisey stuff now obviously google sucks in enterprise and microsoft's very good at it that great relationship the analogy breaks down a bit there but yeah you know no question now google is the new microsoft um you know the operating systems in everywhere and all the different stuff that they do um meanwhile ibm um you know what is it that ibm became well they still sell mainframes. IBM's install base of mainframes is in fact still growing in terms of installed compute base. You know, they sold record IBM a mainframe compute capacity in 2020. Like in the history of the company, they never sold as much. Now, of course, this is partly Moore's law. It's partly migrating, you know, VMs onto running on, on mainframes as all sorts of, you know, it's not the same mainframes that you're running in 1960. Um, but what they turned into is a business that A, serviced and sold the basically the legacy product. Um, and the legacy customers for the legacy product still use it. I mean, you know, your bank still runs on mainframes. You know, the airlines still run on mainframes. You know, all the old mainframe stuff that IBM sold in 1960 is mostly still out there, mostly still running, main- well, a lot of it's still running on mainframes. So that legacy business is still there. And then they built a huge pro-serve business on top of this. And they built this marketing machine with a ProServe business attached called Watson and sprinkled some AI pixie dust on top of it. But it was basically a bunch of like Accenture style outsourced consultancy. Um, they'd go and build you a SQL database and say, hey, our AI successfully solved this problem for you. Like, no, it's, 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 a, it's a fucking database. Um, <laughs> and that's what Watson was. Um, 
And the same thing for IBM, for, for, for Microsoft. You know, Microsoft has got this huge legacy business of Windows and Office, which is, I haven't looked at the numbers in a while, but, you know, they successfully migrated great chunks of that over to Azure. Um, they've successfully built a big kind of cloud business. And, you know, one of the slides in my presentation is there's a, there's a Goldman Sachs do a CIO survey um, every, every six months. Um, asking like a whole bunch of big company CIOs how much of your workflows are in the cloud. And the number's been sort of stuck at 20 to 25% for like five years. And you see the same in numbers from Gartner and IDC. So like cloud has still got a very long way to go. And, you know, that's sort of what Microsoft does. That's what the act, that's what Microsoft actually is. They provide big, they, they provide Windows and Office as accounting tools and business management tools to big companies. And then there's the sizzly bit, which is the Watson bit. And so right. there was HoloLens. And then it's now it now it's being GPT, and is this really the future of search? Well, this, <laughs> there's you know I'm being unfair because this is not nearly as much kind of hand as hand wavy as, as Watson was, but you know this is not you know it's very un kind of clear that this is like a fundamental transformation in their business. Right. I mean, of all the reasons we've talked about, like, is this really, okay, wind back a second. Unquestionably, LLMs are a transformative technology in the way that, you know, Watson was, was there was no transformative, there was no technology at all in Watson. Um, but does that mean that Microsoft takes over um, the internet and displaces Google and web search gets completely replaced by this? Like, yeah, that's a lot more difficult to say at this stage. Oh my God, could you just imagine <laughs> this version of Bing GPT playing Jeopardy and the type of stuff that it would spew out? I, I, I would pay pay-per-view money to watch that in action. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, um, you know, I, I saw a couple of examples. In my, my, my comedy example, which is a slide in the presentation, is I asked ChatGPT, write me a country and Western song about how I made lots of money in social media. And now I think it's destroying democracy, but I'm not giving the money back. Um, right. I, mean, abs I absolutely <laughs> did not have a large private equity investor in mind um, when I when I asked that question. Aha. Um, uh -huh. Okay. Yeah, it's fun, but that comes back to the error thing, and you know, the error thing is something that you could spend hours talking about. You know, if you are, I asked it to make a picture of Sundar Pichai um, and Satya Nadella as boxers. In fact, I asked a picture for Satya Nadella as a boxer. I put this in my newsletter. I'll probably publish it in the next day or two. It's a really good picture of Satya. It's not a very good likeness. It's a really it's a convincing picture of somebody who sort of looks a bit like Satya Nadella as a boxer. Um, two problems. Number one, the rings in the boxing, the ropes in the boxing ring aren't quite right. Do I care? No, that's not the point. It's a photo illustration. Problem two, he appears to have an extra arm growing out of his kidneys and also a hand growing out of his belly button. They're very well Which rendered. Is where they, they belong. Look, they look like arms. They've got boxing gloves. They look like boxing gloves, except that people don't have four arms. And is that wrong? Well, what did I ask for? It's sort sort of, and I can see that it's wrong. On the other hand, the rings around the boxing, the ropes on the boxing ring are wrong too. Is that wrong? No, that doesn't matter. What did I ask it to make? Well, did I? I didn't ask it for Satya Nadella, but only two arms. I mean, kind of the, the, the kind of the example I keep kind of circling around is I asked it to write a bio of me, which OpenAI now doesn't let you do. They've got all sorts of kind of filters on it. Right. And so it says Benedict Evans is a world-renowned and hugely influential thought leader, which is obviously entirely correct. Um, 
Then it says worked for Andreessen and Horowitz. Well, yes, true. Um, then it says worked for Bain. Uh, no, not true. And founded a startup. Uh, actually, never heard of that startup, and now I've never founded anything. Um, and um, went to Oxford. Uh, no, I went to Cambridge. And has written books. No, I haven't. And so, again, you can kind of look at this and say this is wrong. You can also look at this and say this is an extremely accurate rendition of what biographies of people like Benedict tend to look like. It's a very good reproduction of the pattern. It's a 100% accurate reproduction of the pattern. They always say what university, and they always always a prestigious university. They always say things like that. As a biography of me specifically, it's wrong, but is that what it's trying to do? No, what it's trying to do is say, what would a biography of someone like Benedict tend to look like? I mean, this is exactly. the same thing with the footnotes thing. Have you seen this? So if you ask it to write like a medical paper describing the symptoms of appendicitis and it gives with footnotes and it gives you footnotes, but it doesn't know what footnotes are. And so it gives footnotes that reference universities and doctors, except that doctor didn't work at that university and that other university actually doesn't exist. But it looks like a university name and they look like doctors' names. It looks like a footnote. It's a very accurate rendition of what footnotes look like. That's not, and that's what it's trying to do. It's not trying to make footnotes. It's trying to make things that look like footnotes. So I had to pick a couple of favorite episodes from the Big Technology Podcast. And it, Bing, this was Bing, and Bing got some of them right, but made some of them completely up and but but did they sound like episodes oh my god i was like did we record that episode like did we yeah, have exactly. those guests on and we hadn't and i was like oh uh, maybe this is, should be an episode that we end up doing yeah we'll give it a year and it can generate the, the episodes as well like, right and then i'm really out of a job that's what i was yeah. doing with Sheehan. um and so this is it's like this comes back to my kind of domain point like if you were to ask, if I ask it, I talk about this with someone this morning, like if I ask it to make a picture of Joe Biden wearing Roman armor, if you're the editor of The Economist and you want that for your cover, you'll look at the picture and go, that's great. If you are, if you work at the British Museum and you're a specialist in ancient armor, you'll look at that and know that's completely wrong. So what is it that you're trying to do here? What is it that you wanted? Why did you want it? Like the buckles are in the wrong place and that's made of steel and they didn't have steel then, they had bronze. But like, does it matter? Well, it depends. Exactly. And that's the problem with using it for general search. Because if you've got it in one vertical, then you can kind of contain and understand the question and you know whether it matters or not. But if you're just going to throw it at every Google search, you've got no idea whether it matters or not or whether it's right yeah. or wrong or what that no, would it's mean. It's not ready. Yeah. And so I think this yeah. is the puzzle is what's the accuracy? What does that mean? How would you change that? Can you change that at like a generalized level? And, you know, I'll listen to this. We won't, of course, we won't listen to this. We'll listen to this in a year. And like, I'm sure like two thirds of what I've said will be wrong. But that's kind of the point. Like, we don't really know what the questions are yet. It's so no, hard exactly. so quickly. Hey, look, it's much better to start with the questions. And I, I think we will listen, re-listen to it because I just went back to our last podcast and I listened to that all the way through. And at least I can say for myself that, I mean, I would love to have you back. And, and when you're back, I'll definitely be on this one. <laughs> and then we can start going back and seeing how our predictions stacked up or how even the questions that we were starting to ask, how the, those stacked up with, with reality. So, uh, Benedict, it's been great chatting with you. Thanks so much for coming on. Sure. Great to chat. Thanks for having me. Always great to chat. Do you want to let people know where they can find your presentation and sign up for your newsletter? Yeah, well, if you Google me, my parents had good SEO. So Googling Benedict <laughs> Evans will, will produce the right results. Amazing. Okay, great. Benedict, thanks so much. Hope to do it again soon. Thanks. 
And that'll do it for us here on Big Technology Podcast. Thank you so much, Benedict Evans, for joining. Always great to speak with you. And we can do this for next year's presentation as well. Thanks to all of you, the listeners. Great having you come back week after week. Thank you very much. Thank you, Nate Gowatney, for handling the audio. I'm looking forward to seeing you in Austin, uh, I think, what, next week, coming up for South by Southwest, an annual reunion that's well in store. So I'm pumped for that. Thank you, LinkedIn, for having me as part of your podcast network. And once again, thanks to all of you for listening. Always great to have you here. We'll be back on Friday for a new conversation with Ron John Roy, who's also going down to Austin. That should be fun. And stay tuned for that. Okay, thanks again. And we will see you next time on Big Technology Podcast.